tonight on Arena. Gabriel Byrne plays Sam Beckett in Dance First and Derry Farrell sings and plays the bazooki live in studio. Text us on 51551 or tweet at RTE Arena. It being Thursday night, we begin with films and three out of the four films up for review are Irish or have a strong Irish connection. Dance First is a biopic about the playwright Samuel Beckett, starring Gabriel Byrne and Fiona O'Shea in the lead roles of Beckett Old and Young. Fingernails is a romantic science fiction starring Jessie Buckley as a young woman looking for certainty in love. Stolen is a documentary by Margot Harkin where the horror and legacy of the mother and baby homes is explored. And finally, with no obvious Irish connection this time, Bottoms is a teenage comedy about two lesbian high school students who set up a fight club. I'm joined in studio by Arlene Hunt and Donald Clark and we'll start with Dance First, where we meet Samuel Beckett as he is awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. Less than overjoyed, he wants to give the prize money away and look back at his life to decide who is worthy of the, of the money. Who better to discuss his life with than his own alter ego? So you took the prize money. I'm going to give it away. Do you really think that's going to help? No. Do you? If anything, it might make things worse. I'm still going to do it. So who are the candidates for this money? Whose forgiveness do you need the most? No, I'm spoiled for choice. You know this is going to be a journey through your shame. Isn't everything? So then, we shall begin with Mother. How could we not? There, Gabriel Byrne playing Samuel Beckett in Dance First. So, Donald, Gabriel Byrne's performance as Beckett kind of bookends the, yeah. the, the story of Samuel Beckett. And as it's set up there, we're looking back on his life, mainly through the women in his life. Uh, yes, there's a good deal of that. I mean, there's a very good performance by um, uh, uh, Sandrine Bonaire uh, as his wife and Maxine Peake as the translator with whom he had some sort of relationship with. I'm a bit vague about that. Um, later on in life, was a translator and worked for the BBC. And uh, briefly, I think, and most, I think in many ways, most notably, though it's a very small, very small role, Brona Gallagher as Nora Barnacle, who um, spits at him across the uh, dining table in a way I find most invigorating. And you kind of want a bit more of that of the of the of the splitting between him and the younger uh, Samuel Beckett, um, it's it's could have been a disaster. I mean, it's just one of these things. These literary flicks often um, come a bit clunky and have too many scenes in which people. Read a, read a bit of text, say, oh, it's a work of genius. There's some of that going on, mm-hmm. not too much. But they've decided more strongly on the life than the work, haven't they? They have. Maybe, and um, perhaps we, need a little, little, we, would have, we would have liked a little bit more on the work. Some kind of line for those who are unaware of who Beckett is and what he did as to why the work was so transformative. Um, they've made an interesting... I mean, the, the issue, I think, the biggest problem for them, I think, in this film was the towering notion of Beckett as icon that... 
and that's not just a result of the work, but it's only to a small extent as a result of the work. It's much to what we think the man to be, and his appearance as much as anything else. That famous photograph that Jane Bone took for the Observer um, in, I think, the early 80s that appeared on um, Deirdre Bear's autobiography, or biography, rather, of uh, Beckett is how we think of him, this towering aquiline head with this furrowed brow, and that's an awful lot to take on as an actor. And they've kind of beaten their way around that to a certain extent with the older Beckett, because Gabriel Byrne could not look less like Samuel Beckett. Um, this is no slight on him. He is always is an enormously professional and amiable actor and does a terrific job. Fiona Shea, who plays the younger Beckett, does look a little bit more like the younger Beckett, and therefore is a slightly Deborah doesn't have to work so hard to convince us about who he's playing. I think he's very good, and I think he actually is the centre of the film. I think what virtues, what virtues it has, I think, are down to him. Now, when we see the young Beckett played by Fiona Shea, first of all, it's the relationship, Arlene, with his mother and then later when he goes to Paris in search of James Joyce, the relationship with Lucia. How are those oh, relationships pl- played out? It was fairly complicated for him because his interest was with Joyce and, you know, the he wanted Joyce to be his mentor. He wanted to learn from Joyce. He wanted to work on his own craft, his own writing. And, of course, Joyce sort of more or less said to him, don't don't be a writer, don't, you know, don't. Because Joyce had gone high and he'd gone low. And he's married to Nora and they have a daughter, Lucia. Uh, and Lucia has... She was of the flapper era, shall we say. And so it was very convenient for Nora and Joyce that when the very young and quite handsome Beckett came along and Lucia had a, took quite a shine to him, that he would escort her out of an evening to various different dance halls and give them a break. Because as we sort of transcribe very, very quickly, Lucia is not of sound mind. I think that's probably the fairest way to say it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As portrayed in this. Yeah. But I mean, it is known that she had uh, mental issues. Yeah. But it was also seen that she was a great dancer. She was an amazing dancer, but also very of that time. She was quite wild. Uh, and the Beckett that we meet here is very buttoned down, very sedate from a very good middle class home in Ireland who really, really did not want to be involved with a young, vibrant, over-energetic woman who we had to spend night after night after night because those were his choices. It was like either That's go out with That's quite fun, actually. Yeah, it was yeah, like yeah, either go with, and there's a, there's a wonderful scene so where, she, where, she, where um, Nora says to him, you know, it's either, you know, dumplings... <laughs> You know, you you leave, or it's dumplings, and then you take well, the Lucia. Bohem- yeah, the, bohem- the Bohemian life was always attractive on film. There's no way around that. Particularly the Bohemian Not life. Not for him. He just sat in a chair and he looked yeah. like he was going to cry. You know, for most of it, because the Bohemian life looks fantastic for those two twenty minutes of them dancing frenetically mm. around the scene. But you think about the fact that you're going home at four and five in the morning, and then you have to get up and do your work. And oh, sure. Well, I mean, all these people best have miserable lives, yeah. really, despite and the and fact Beckett that it seems very romantic to, to us. He just wants the speech of Joyce yeah. and wants to learn. I mean, I think Aidan Gillen's Joyce, one of the things that amused me, that when he strides around the corner and you first see him, you're kind of reminded that that Joyce has in our imagination as much uniform as this Batman. You know, he turns up in the entire, <laughs> what I would call, statue costume. I think we should have a listen to um, Aidan Gillen as Joyce. Here, Fiona Shea playing Beckett introduces himself to Joyce, played by Aidan Gillen, in a restaurant and asks him to take him on as his student. I hope you do not think that you can learn from me that you have come to seek epiphany at my broken altar. You know, I thought I wanted to make your acquaintance, perhaps offer my services. 
some reading or some research. I know from my professors at Trinity that you've offered similar postings to students in the past. Well, you know, Mr. Beckett, I am not the James Joyce of Ulysses. I am the James Joyce of failed endeavor, fading glory and encroaching decay. My head is full of pebbles and rubbish and bits of glass and broken matches. Why would you wish to set out on such a dispiriting journey? Mr. Joyce, I'd rather watch you fail than anyone else succeed. <laughs> it's hard to believe he would with, <laughs> after that kind of stingy. Totally, he didn't really want it to work for him at all. <laughs> he kept saying it's a bad idea. Yes, I think he wanted him to take his daughter out on yes. social evenings. Yeah. Overall, Donald, what did you think? Uh, it's fine. I would have liked a bit more experimentation. It becomes very linear in the middle. Um, so I'm giving it three stars. Three stars. And from you, Arlene? I gave it three out of five. I thought it was fine. Um, I actually quite enjoyed the latter stage of the, when Byrne comes back into it as the elder uh, elder Beckett I think he gave a certain weight to it and a physicality to it that I really enjoyed uh, so for that I'd give it 3 out of 5 Well that's 3 out of 5 from both of you from Dance First the story of Samuel Beckett The earliest signs of heart problems are often found in the spotting bending or discoloration of fingernails It's with this quote from an unknown scientist that fingernail starts It features a young couple who are officially in love Anna played by Jesse Buckley and Jeremy Allen White as her boyfriend, Ryan. Arlene, what's the premise of fingernails? When is it set? We don't really know. We know it's it's science fiction, but it could to be me, now it's, or it's, in it, the... I think it's more in the 80s past. because everyone uses... Well, is this version, is, is one of those films that is, I would say, set in a version of the future which is conceived in our past. Yeah, a, ver- a say, version of... It's, it's a future alter- conceived in the 70s. Then, an alternate dimension because everyone uses, you know, rotary phones and the cars are old. People drive old mm-hmm. Volvos and stuff like that. The clothes are very 80s. You know, the fuzzy jumpers and clunky shoes and stuff like that. Um, so basically the premises of it is you can go to an institution. If you're, you've got your partner, your boyfriend, your girlfriend and you're, you're quite serious about each other and you're quite romantic together, you can go to an institution and you can go through a series of ba- a battery of tests that will improve and exercises that will improve the bond between you before you go to get your one of your fingernails removed and tested in a machine which looks like a, a microwave attached to a really old style television but anywho uh, so you get it tested and your results will come up either 0%, 50% or 100%. If it's 50%, only one of you is in love with the other. If it's 0%, you're not in love at all. But if it's 100%, then you are completely right for each other. And this down the line then will prevent divorce. It'll prevent heartbreak. It'll prevent all of the things that that come with people that get romantically entangled with one another but aren't really soulmates. So the couple at the centre of this, Anna and Ryan, played by Jesse Buckley. They, they have had a test done already yes. and they were positive. So they're a positive match for each other. But are they happy? No. <laughs> right, so they're just in love but unhappy or...? Well, she... So the, everything about the relationship is is, is odd. You know, the opening gambit of this, she lies to him about where she goes. You know, she's unemployed, so she's seeking employment. And so she tells him that she got a job in a school, but she did not. She went to the local Love Institute run by uh, Luke uh, Wilkins' character. Wilson. Yeah, and so so she goes there and she gets a job, applies for a job there, gets for a job there. Um, Ryan 
seems to have almost no interest in his wife whatsoever, like none. Their evenings are spent watching documentaries, you know, flumped on a sofa together. And I think she even tries to do in a romantic nature to him. He either pretends he doesn't notice or he genuinely doesn't notice, neither of which are particularly romantic. We listen to a clip to get the dynamic of the relationship. Here, Anna, played by Jessie Buckley, is the school teacher whose school has closed down. Uh, She's job hunting one evening and she gets this call. Hello? Yes, this is she. Oh, uh, yes. I, I, I came by and left my CV a few times. At, at the Love Institute? Great. <laughs> at noon? Great. Okay. Have a nice evening. Another interview? Yeah. It's great. Where is it? Pinewood Elementary School. Oh. Is that good? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, they have, like, a lot of famous people study there. Really? Like who? Oh, um, Ginger Spice. Wow. Yeah. She's my favourite. I know. Jesse Buckley there as Anna and Jeremy Allen White as Ryan. So we talk about suspending disbelief when we go to the cinema, um, Donald, but you really have to do this here to buy the idea of the Institute. So it's more about the nature of love than uh, about, you know, whether the tests work or... Well, there's a sense in which the test is in some ways standing in for our formal notion of marriage. And and there's an argument being made by society in this film this is a more reliable and more worthwhile way of linking yourself together formally than marriage. But of course it's not, because ultimately there's rather old-fashioned moral, I think, at the core of this, which you can't define and quantify love. It's something that's beyond that. Although (laughs) you could, you wouldn't have poetry and novels and music and all the rest of the things we've used to try and uh, interpret love. Um, Even if you weren't aware of the source of this film, if you come across it um, with no prior knowledge, you'd be pointing towards the new Greek weird. Um, uh, um, This is from the director of Apples, from a Greek film, a terrific film from about four or five years back, which was um, taken up by... um, uh, which which quite a success on the festival circuit. And Kate Blanchett took it up and was an executive producer. Um, he's a, a good friend of Yorgos Lanthimos, who, of course, is the most leading figure in that new the Greek lobster weird. And- exactly. And the film that most, probably one most reminds one of, is The Lobster, which was uh, one of the first films that Lanthimos made in, in English. And again, again, you have a society imposing a formal notion of love upon humanity. You have a high concept built around that. But this is much more enclosed by the ideas. The characters, I think, have less room to breathe. I mean, unlike the characters, the future of the couple played by Colin Farrell and Rachel Weisz in The Lobster, they don't get a chance to break out and breathe beyond the confines of the structures we put around them. But I think it does, it does sort of live... It does live, I think, not least because of... I think actually Riz Ahmed and, uh, and uh, Jesse Buckley are the ones that make, make it live. Riz Ahmed um, is, is the man she works with in the Institute and right. has very strong feelings, romantic and you, feelings and, for. And the longer it goes on, the more it kind of turned into a traditional romance. But that's helped out by the fact that Jesse Buckley, who well, didn't really occur to me until she made this, um, is herself developing a reputation as being one of the queens of contemporary weird. Um, she was in, I'm thinking of ending things that, 
tremendous uh, um, uh, film on Netflix from uh, Charlie Not to mind Kaufman. her role in Fargo. Um, and well, yes, that that could, that that, could, that that was quite. I was thinking more of Men, that uh, um, oh, that yes, yeah. feminist, weird feminist mm-hmm. horror film she made about two or three years ago, and um, she fits those things very nicely. She's got a very good line in consternation and puzzlement that um, she's a master of a maestro of consternation and puzzlement, which fits this project very nicely. But ultimately, I mean, I think what what told on me, what to, what told on me about my real feelings about this was when they seemingly all go and see Notting Hill and you hear Notting Hill playing the brackets. A variety and of you, Hugh Grant films. That's yeah, the whole point. A variety right. of Hugh I Grant can, films. A romance. Yes, this, these yeah. are the tests or yeah. these are the, yeah. the some, exercises some that the, the people in the institute do. A small voice in my brain was saying, I kind of wish I was watching Notting Hill. Yes, because you were saying that the love story between the Jesse Buckley character yeah. uh, and, the bo- and the boy at the institute is just too slow, I mean, grindingly yeah, it just, slow. It, it grind, uh, I said it, it moves at a glacial place and grinds to a glacial halt. You know, it just, yes. it's too long. It's too many stolen glances with nothing behind it. It's just, you know, oh, it just drove me insane towards the latter third of it, you know, because you I was almost shouting at the screen going, just do something, make something happen. And that's the whole thing about love, right? Love is passion. It's full of passion. It's full of doubt and, 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 and fire and passion. And there's no, no fire there's- Passion this. So stars out of five from you, Arlene, for I, I get, fingernails. I, I gave it two out of five. Two out of five. And thankfully your fingernails weren't pulled out in the, <laughs> in the frustration. And from you, Donald. I'll give it three. Nice, very nicely carried off. I did love... Oh, but yeah, that also the, the look of it is tremendous, not least because they do this ageing of the film. So it looks like slightly crackled, slightly beaten up uh, film, which I like that. But, you know, I give it three stars comfortably enough, that, um, though it doesn't quite come off. So three and two for fingernails. Stolen is a documentary by Margot Harkin about what happens in Ireland's mother and baby's homes, beginning with the discovery of a mass graves in Toome. Uh, we hear local Toome woman Mary Moriarty. She tells how she first found out about the burial place. A neighbour came in to me and she says to me that there was a boy out in the back and he had a, a school and a stick. And I looked at it and I realised it's a real head because it had its teeth. But it didn't have wisdom teeth, it had its back teeth. So that means it was over three years of age like to have back teeth and all. And I said, put that back where you got it. And he did. And he said, there's loads of them up there thrown a heap. Loads of them up there in in thrown in a heap. Donald, it's a shocking start to the documentary. It is. It's a very canny choice to have that I mean because you I suppose if you're making a film like this you might worry people have heard enough about this and they've been deadened to it and well I can assure people if they approach this if they feel that they might have been deadened to it and that this film will still work upon them um, very powerfully I've seen it twice and I I saw the the, um, Dublin Film Festival at the start of this year and I watched it again last week and I again was kind of sort of destroyed by it you know it's you couldn't it would be wrong to think you could make a comprehensive documentary about this story because the story is so huge. That's one of the things that um, has caused so much ructions. The fact the more you dig into it, the more, sorry, it's an unfortunate uh, choice of words there, but um, the more you discover and the more you realise the scope of of, of this catastrophe. Um, uh, so, as I say, it's impossible to even consider making a comprehensive documentary, but this is probably as close as you get in that she comes at it from 
various angles. She has poets and artists giving interpretations of the meaning and impact of, of these stories. We have academics talking us through the history and talking us through the legalities of it. But I think it definitely belongs to the survivors, um, who are all extraordinary, extraordinarily brave and all have all have amazing stories and all come across as you know charismatic, interesting, brave individuals that um, uh, um, who you know become heroes of the state. There's a chilling piece where people go through the the, the children, the babies, the oh, were the buried. Countless, the countless death certificates. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that, I've actually found that really difficult because they were showing the ages of these little tots, like the most defenceless of all, like very, very small, very small, three months old, two months old, up to a year, 13 months old, babies. And, and they had coined a, a descriptor. There was a particular word and it stuck in my brain for uh, for ages after and it's called marasmus and it wasn't a word I'd heard before. Mm. And basically marasmus means, you know, to, to just basically starve. It's malnutrition. It's to starve to death. It's because you weren't worth feeding. And the, the others, you know, there was one particular woman, she had survived and she had various different siblings that she never found. But in the death certificates, they were described them, you know, as mentally deficient. You know that they they couldn't be bothered even to or come up. idiot was the phrase idiot, that they yeah. used. Yeah, and it's just when you when you read through the that it's hard to read through a piece of ancient paper or old text, but when you see something like that, like Marasmus, and then it's such a glorious word, and then you look it up, and it just means they let them starve to death. Mm-hmm. And the bond secures. I mean, the bond secures were supposed to be the most caring of all of the. No- how could you let this happen? And 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 it's not just you can't just blame the ins- the, the religious institutes. This was statewide. It sounds um, horrific. It's a a horrific story, but I think told very in in a new and 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 you know we're hearing extremely effective. It's really beautifully shot. uh, What would you say? Elegantly shot. Beautifully shot. Lovely drone. drone Wonderful drone shots of the areas, which are attractive, despite the fact that they're telling a terrible story. So, stars out of five for you for stolen, Donald. Uh, Five, I think. I think I can't imagine it could have been done better. I gave it a big stonking five because I think what uh, Margot Harkin has done here has given a very powerful service to the voices and to for people and I think people don't be deadened to it go see it it's it's really it's worth watching uh, so it's an unfortunate segue. It's a team comedy. It's called Bottoms. It's the story of two unpopular lesbian friends, PJ and Josie. Uh, to meet girls, they lose their virginity and lose their virginity. They decide to start a school fight club, but they soon find themselves in over their heads. Arlene, briefly tell us about Bottoms. Oh, God help us. It's, it's you just, you've just actually just nailed it on the head there. It's basically two very unpopular lesbian young women in a high school, which doesn't, it's not like any high school I can even imagine. And I've watched all of the episodes of Buffy. Um, they form, they t- go to their principal who's about to suspend them from school and they say they want to form a self-defence class. That's what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And so one of the girls does all the leg work and one of the other girls, uh, PJ, discovers that all of the ugly girls have gone to the self-defence class and they're hugely disappointed about this because they have their eye on two hotties in the school who are cheerleaders. So as luck would have it, the two cheerleaders that they both fancy arrive to learn self-defence as well for reasons I don't fully understand because they're already really popular in the school. But And so they go along and then a kind of female solidarity oozes out of the group uh, after a while. And then eventually this particular solidarity gets on the nerves of the jocks of the school who are annoyed to find out that their babes are involved in other babes' yes. business. Uh, yes. And yeah. did it make you laugh? 
No, I found it. It is a comedy. I, 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 really? I'll tell you. I said I found it crass, stupid, idiotic with a loose script that somehow managed to throw up a few funny moments. Well, uh, for, for, fu- for balance, the- I know I have somebody <laughs> on your I'm left who is very positive. St- I've been doing this show for I've never been, uh, one of the best films I've seen this year. Absolutely hilarious from beginning to end, and a really cunning subversion of all the traditions of it's interesting a lot of the American reviews have got seen it as send up of the high school um, comedy I think that's quite right I think so many of the best high school comedies have in fact been playing those Drop conventions Dead Gorgeous already. was a good high school um, comedy I mean Mean Girls four films that have all been playing with this but this kind of absolutely pushes it to the edge a very clever um, director Emma Seligman who made Shiva Baby before uh, and two incredible performance I mean, Ayo Edebiri has just had an incredible year in this and she's and so I think, for I, you it's laugh out loud Oh, it's, it, it, but it's more than that. It's really clever a subversion of all those conventions with tremendous performance. And I love the fact that they, they paint, they basically give the football team, they, they basically code them as female in the stereotypes of a high school comedy, which is really funny. Can you translate that love into stars? Oh, five stars, definitely. Oh, five out of five. And from you, I can't expect I, the same. I oozed out two. <laughs> two. Two and five stars for Bottoms. Donald Clark and Arlene Hunt, thank you very much. It's just 7.30. Following the legacy of the renowned Geordie Hanna Traditional Singing Weekend, a new festival of traditional song and music takes place in Tyrone this weekend. The Lockshore Sessions will bring traditional singers and musicians from all over Ireland and beyond to Derry Tresk and the shores of Loch Ney for a weekend of music and song. Derry Farrell will be appearing at the festival this Saturday night and he joins me in studio now with Bazooki in hands. Derry, um, this Lockshore Sessions, it's, this is the inaugural one, but you have previously been at the Geordie Hanna Traditional uh, Singing Festival. What's, what's a singing festival like? Oh, it's fantastic. Oh, <laughs> my God, it's fantastic. It's just, you know, my dad brought me years ago um, and we didn't actually know where we were going to. Uh, I don't actually even think I owned the bazooki at the time. And we would, uh, I, w- I would have had a banjo with me, a tenor banjo, and uh, we went up to sit into a, a session and the session was on. It's fantastic. I played a few tunes. And then when it was over then, this amazing singing session started where guys would sing unaccompanied songs, you know, and it just, oh, I remember my jaw almost hitting the floor going, these guys, and, and each one of them were better than the next, singing, like, and singing fantastic songs, like, you know. And I Long, myself, long ballads. Beautiful, beautiful ballads. Uh, you know, uh, uh, time didn't matter, like, you know what I mean? And and it was great, yeah. And, and um, I actually never got to any of the concerts, but I did get into a few of the sessions, and it, I knew that's what I wanted. And could to you approach do. somebody afterwards and say, you know, what's that song? And could you learn the song off somebody or... Or is were you a bit too young to do that? No, I absolutely. Uh, I, I I was able to go and ask people. Uh, a little bit shy now I was, but Desi, my dad, uh, not one bit of shyness about him. He would have been up on my behalf asking about songs and tunes and things like this, you know. And uh, to so this you day, could go away with a pocket full of songs. Uh, unbelievable, like, and I mean, I'm not talking about just any any old song. Like, y- you know, these guys up here are of the best singers of traditional songs, in my opinion. 
in the whole of Ireland. You know? Now you're going to sing a few songs for us sure. and uh, sure. you're going to start with the Craig and White Hair and you say that is a connection to where you're going in Tyrone. It is indeed and uh, you know I'll sing a bit of the Craig and White Hair. If I was to sing it we'd be here till about next Wednesday but uh, I'll lovely. sing a bit of it <laughs> and uh, yeah I mean it is it's it's a song that would be uh, connected I was thinking about this on the, on the way in and, and um, yeah it's a song that's almost directly connected with, with the men and the women up there who, who sung these songs. It's a song about uh, hunting the hare and uh, I will sing you a little few minutes of it if you want. Lovely. Okay. Thanks, Gary. In the lowlands of Craigan there lives a white hare And swift as the swallow that flies through the air You may tramp the world over but none to compare To the pride of low Craigan that bonny white hare All oh, clear autumn morning as you will suppose And the red golden sun o'er the green mountain rose Barney Conway came down and he did declare Oh, this day I put an end to the bonny white hair So he searched through the lowlands and down through the glen All amongst the wild ditches where the white hair had been Till at last coming down over the heather so fair For on behind the wild thistle out jumps that white hair Bang, bang, with his guns and his dogs he slipped to As swift as the wind over the green mountain flew But his dogs came back and it made Bernie sigh For he knew that the white hair and bid him goodbye Jolly sportsmen down here from Pumroy, from Coachtown, Dungannon, and likewise the Moy. With our pedigree greyhounds, we've travelled from far, and we've come down to Corrigan in our fine motor car. Oh, we'll into the lowlands, these huntsmen to go, and in search of the white hair, they'd look high and low. Till at last, Barney caught me from a tarp, I'm so rare. She out at the huntsman there lies the white hare Oh, they sent off their dogs and away they did go And as swift as the wind over the green mountain flew But those dogs came back and it made Barney sigh They came back and went home in their fine motor car I hope that you'll forgive me for singing all this a while If there's any amongst you up in Carrickmore Fair Please drink up a help to that funny white hair
what a fantastic <laughs> song. It paints the whole picture, doesn't it? The hair, the, the, the coy hair, and then you have the dogs and you have the guns and you have disappointment. I was just going to say, with, with you know, uh, that song, there's way more verses in that song and they're, it's a little bit pieced together uh, because I didn't want to be singing it all night. But it's just a beautiful song. It's a beautiful song and it mentions Coal Island and Cookstown and Dungannon and all of these places, you know. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's a, it's a very uh, local song to, to kind of, you know, that area. and, and um, It reminded me of those yeah. paintings, those pastoral paintings you have of people out on the hunt. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah you know, that's exactly so. what it is. <laughs> um so you were with us not so long ago about your your album, The Wedding Above England Cree. And obviously the songs from there you collected all over the country. Yeah. And, you know, different, different countries. And, uh, you know, um, it's a yeah, it's it's an album I project that I started doing over uh, the, the lockdown and, and stuff like that, you know, and on and off and. Uh, a lot happened in those couple of years, and uh, came up with this album, uh, "The Wedding Above in Glen Cree." It's uh, that's actually the name of one of the songs off of the album, and uh, but again, which is an were, epic song. I was going to say again, yeah. if I were to sing that for you now, we'd be here yeah. till about the following Wednesday. And, you know, and, so. and at the <laughs> festival now, you'll be able to take the floor and sing as long as you uh, as you want. Sure, and uh, you know. I'll have songs like that. I'll have songs kind of that are, you know, unaccompanied. Uh, songs with the bazooki. Um, songs that people can join in with. Uh, songs that you can't stop people joining in with, you know. And uh, it, it just different kind of versions of songs. Like, I mean, you know, this song is... The next song that I'll probably sing for you is completely different to the Yes, Craig tell us about hair, that you know? one now. It's <clears throat> classed to a pig. Yeah, so so another, another poor animal. <laughs> I, I'm in fear for the pig. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's it's a song like that. Um, oh, oh, like I collected this years ago uh, from um, a singer uh, called Tommy McCarthy, actually. And um, he was singing in Dublin and he sung this song. And I says, please, Tommy, would you mind if I the song and recorded and he says no absolutely no problem so uh, he's a lovely man and a fantastic singer and it's just it's it's a great song it's about a fella who um, kind of has a little bit maybe too much to drink and he's feeling like he wants to go home and give his wife a hug and when he wakes up the next morning he's uh, not hugging his wife but he's clasped to a pig in a loving embrace you know? <laughs> Excellent I'm dying to know how he got there Anyway <laughs> I'll give you a bit of his anyway and see what you think so <laughs> here we go Backwards and forwards I've been reeling in tight And it was some spree that I was at last night And I'd been in McCarty's with Patsy Omar We drank that black bottle from under the bar And we drank and we drank, boys, we banished all care Gave not a thought to foul weather nor fair And now on the floor I'm curled up in a heap Biddy laid me to sleep, biddy laid me to sleep For I'm clasped to the pig in a loving embrace The hairs of his curly tail are tickling my face No use in telling me sober to keep Biddy laid me to sleep, biddy laid me to sleep Hey! 
my naughty black horn. Oh, and if I only hadn't tonight, well, maybe I would not be up for the fight. And if Pat Murphy I chances to meet, it's an elegant rock sheen that we'll have in the street. He'll soon be glad in his utter hole to creep. Oh, lay me to sleep, lay me to sleep. For I'm classed to the ping in the loving embrace, and the hairs of his carny tail are tickling my face. No use in telling me sober to keep. Oh, lay me to sleep, lay me to sleep. And share his embrace And lift my red whiskers Lie close to your face For this crate I won't hurt you And I'll do you no harm Come down here, Biddy And keep me back warm And squeeze up beside me As you've oft done before And I'll sing you to sleep With the sounds of me snore The rats and the mice All around the sweet creep And lay me to sleep, Biddy Lay me to sleep For I'm clasped to the ping In a loving embrace The head of his carly tail are tickling my face. No use in telling me sober to keep. Biddy, lay me to sleep. Biddy, lay me to sleep. leave you up north in case you wouldn't come back. That's clasped to a pig and that's from The Waiting Above in Glen Cree Derry Farrell's album and Derry will be performing at the Lockshire Sessions Festival this Saturday November the 6th and the festival runs from Friday the 3rd until Sunday the 5th uh, Full details at the Lockshire Sessions on Facebook and tickets at ticketsource.eu The Lockshore Sessions Are you on Saturday November the 6th? Um, yeah Yes, yes mm-hmm. Excellent well, enjoy. Thanks very much, Thank Derek. you very much. Before much love bands like Nirvana, Pavement and My Bloody Valentine, there was Sonic Youth, the legendary New York band who formed in 1981 with Thrust and Moore and Kim Gordon at the helm. They led the way for the indie scene over three decades. Thrust and Moore has now written an autobiography, Sonic Life, which takes us from music-obsessed childhood in Connecticut to a 30-year career mixing with the likes of Patti Smith and artist Keith Haring. Peter Murphy has been reading Sonic Youth for us and before we speak to him here in studio, let's listen to one of Sonic Youth's hits, Dirty Boots.
Sonic Youth there with their Dirty Boots from their sixth album, which was Goo. Peter Murphy, you're very welcome. Before we talk about Moore's autobiography, how influential were Sonic Youth? They were located at exactly that gorgeous midpoint between the first wave of CBGB's New York, incredibly, disgustingly hip punk bands who wore skinny drain pipes and dark glasses uh, at nighttime. And what came after, which was Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, Screaming Trees, all the Seattle bands. So they were part of a high point of American indie culture, which was all the 80s bands. So there was almost like a litany that came out. So you would say Sonic Youth, Husker Du, The Minutemen, R.E.M., Flaming Lips, uh, Dinosaur Jr., that wave of um, in- incredibly resourceful guitar bands who were, they were mostly influenced by punk, but also a strange kind of acid-fried psychedelia. Uh, and they they were kind of, they they founded fanzines, they slept on sofas and they had a completely non-corporate American independent underground. That was what was so extraordinary about that period. And Sonic Youth were amongst the, Now, Tarzan Moore was like an ordinary young guy growing up in Connecticut who had who was obsessed with music and I think he was from quite an intellectual or, or well-read family. But like he, he, did he just, was it music that attracted him to going to New York and the, and the East Side? It was because what he was into and what he was hearing in the American underground at that point, I think I think the book begins with Louis Louis, the 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 Kingsmen's 1964 unintelligible hit with lyrics so unintelligible the CIA actually investigated it. Um, but he he kind of was into noise rock, and then when the punk and pre-punk hit, he was geographically well placed in that he and his mate Harold, who was the other outsider in the school, who was. Uh, a gay young man who was equally intrigued by these freaks up in in the Big Apple that they could drive overnight and go see these bands and drive back again. So it was a badge of freak flag honour to be into these bands because mostly what was film, filling the stadiums at the time were, were the mega bands like from Led Zeppelin to Emerson, Lake and Palmer to Elton John where everything was incredibly expensive and you had to have a degree in music and um, basically mortgage your family just to afford a keyboard. Now, when you think of uh, downtown in in Manhattan, you think now of it being so gentrified. But at the time, it was still possible to live in in the Lower East Side in, uh, you know, in squats or, as you say, uh, sleeping on people's sofas. Dirty, dangerous um, cold, uh, but cheap was the general consensus of what, I mean, it was, you know, your classic Times Square peep shows and porno movies, midnight movies, uh, muggings, uh, strikes, blackouts, failure to pick up the garbage. The city was on the verge of bankruptcy at the time. So, but there was an incredibly fertile Art scene. Now, what came after the initial surge of punk, the bands like Patti Smith, who, who um, Thurston Moore basically worshipped. Patti Smith and television, all those bands to whom poetry and art was as important as the music, um, came what they called No Wave, which was a far more dissonant, experimental, 
noise rock kind of movement with bands like The Contortions and Lydia Lunch, uh, of which Thurston Moore became involved. His One of his first incursions into music was with Glenn Branca's guitar orchestra, which was kind of like John Cage turned up to 11. Um, even John Cage hated it. That's how radical it was. Then he he and Kim Gordon met before a Sonic Youth was formed. Yes. So did they become a romantic relationship straight away or was it the music that, that, that brought them together? Well, they met through the independent art and punk scene, but they began making music almost and when immediately. When we say music, we mean people who are into poetry or who are into painting. It's, it's a whole art scene. What's incredible about that period in history is the crossover between the different forms of extremely experimental avant-garde art and I mean the older the older um, icons were hanging around William Burroughs had his infamous bunker flat in downtown Iggy uh, Iggy and John Cale and Lou Reed and all these people could be found at the front row of CBGB's but um, these, And Thurston adored Iggy Pop Adored Iggy Pop and um but, you know, basically it was living hand to mouth. So himself and Kim were kind of like a pair of urchins. And they had been through various incarnations of bands and numerous lineups before Sonic Youth came together. Sonic Youth came together, um, forged a really uh, uh, raw, visceral, interesting sound using, you know, sometimes distressed instruments. Thurston Moore would play guitar. Yes, I was wondering, wh- where does that sound come from? That the kind of noisy, dis. Weird tunings, yeah. cheap instruments, using unorthodox methods of playing those instruments, such as beating them, uh, hit, playing them with drumsticks. Uh, they were a complete, you know, art school band. Um, but as they pulled together, like the first album of Note, really, was Bad Moon Rising, which spawned a song called Death Valley 69 in collaboration with Lydia Lunch, which was a kind of a commentary on the fascination with the Manson murders, that very kind of late 70s way of... And is it a fascination with the Manson murders or is it about society's fascination with it? Yeah, more an ironic comment on society's fascination with it and a means also of disgusting the boomer generation uh, in the same way as the British punks would wear swastika armbands. It was just like a taboo subject. So, um, but throughout the... So throughout the 1980s, they just became better and better and a more accomplished band and had a lot of like-minded artists around like Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and I'd start sending Noy Boughton. And uh, as I say, it was an incredibly progressive time because these bands were getting played on college radio and, um, and you know, R.E.M. at the time were very much part of that scenario. The, the real turning point was when they made a double album called Daydream Nation, which was voted album of the year in most of the major publications. And that prepared the way for... Um, so there was themselves, the Pixies and Jane's Addiction, bands like that, who basically paved the way for what would become known as grunge or the Seattle sound. And, and was the Seattle sound listening? Is that is were, were Nirvana listening? You know, on radio, or were they visiting New York, or how how did that happen? That weird, strange word combination of word of mouth cassette da- tapes to the post, uh, sort of uh, as Sam as that almost Soviet means of disseminating secret information. Nirvana were hugely influenced by 
Sonic Youth music. I mean, if you listen to Drain You or any of the songs off Nevermind, you can hear blatant sort of use of, of Sonic Youth dynamics and the way they'd break down into feedback before surging back into a chorus. But also the fact that it was okay to sign to a major. So Nirvana ended up signing to Geffen, uh, Sonic Youth label. They ended up uh, using their same management. Sometimes they would steal their road crew. So... But, I mean, to speak of, that's where the book is at its strongest. It's a social history. And um, and does he get into the personal either in his relationship with Kim Gordon or with the rest of the band? Because it is, the, the book is about the, the duration, takes the duration of the band until it broke up in 2011. Yes. Uh, and it broke up somewhat contentiously uh, because uh, Thurston Moore... Uh, was having an affair with a woman in New York and that basically signaled the end of the band. And this is covered in, in Kim Gordon's book, Girl in a Band, um, in coruscating detail. Uh, he doesn't really cover that so much. He kind of whistles past the graveyard. But there are other... So I would say the book's fault is that it's too wide-ranging and too demographic and maybe doesn't go into enough depth. But as a social history, it's really forensic. And if you want, as I am a huge fan of that period of music, and you want to learn about uh, what that scene was like and what those characters were like, and also the mechanics of how Sonic Youth worked and the basic difficulties that a band who had to play at that kind of volume, the battles they did with sound engineers, the entire continent over, with sound systems, with touring Europe, with amplifiers that basically couldn't take what the band were doing to them. That's really, really fascinating and kind of comforting to know that even a band as great as this had those. And overall, kind of Peter, would you recommend it? I would recommend it for anybody who's interested in this period of music. I would say it's a must read. By far, I think, um, look, if you want a comparison, and comparisons are inevitable, Kim Gordon is a better prose writer, um, a better writer, full stop, but this is more comprehensive. And there are, there are certain. Uh, periods in the band's life, such as when they were opening up for Neil Young and Crazy Horse in the middle of the Gulf War in front of hippie, reactionary hippies who hated them. That's where the book really takes off and also the early days in Nirvana. And it's as, as a cultural history, it's invaluable. Peter Murphy, thank you very much. Sonic Youth by Thurston Moore is published by Faber. That's it for tonight's show. The programme was researched by Paula Shields. Liam Mullum was on sound. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. And tonight's show was produced by Reg Luby. John Creedon is on after the news at eight.